First Samuel chapter four. Um, obviously, Manny has been dealing with First Samuel. Um, never really had any intent to to jump in on that. Uh, I just let him, you know, run with it and, and deal with all the things that he wanted to. I I really only intended to write an article on one small part of this section, and then he pressured me. And uh, I, I do think it, it will be good to preach on it um, rather than write something. Um, but it's going to be a big section, so we're going to basically cover chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, obviously, that's big, so we're, we're not going to be really dealing in depth with all of it. We're really just going to you know, kind of hit some sections, but the whole, the whole section is really one unit. It's about one, one particular thing. And so as we deal with it, I want to just, I want you to see three particular aspects of who God is all the way from, from the start of chapter four to the end of chapter seven. There are three aspects of who God is that I want you to be able to see. Some are glorious and Others, maybe not so much, depending on how we're looking at them. But let's really just dive right into it. The first one is this. And, and we're going to read sections of this. So I, a lot of it's going to be me filling in what we're not reading. But the first one is this. God's presence is not promised to the rebellious. God's presence is not promised to the rebellious. I'm going to read basically uh, chapter 4, verses 5, all the way through to 22. But before we do, I want to just give you a little bit before we read all of that, so you can kind of see what has unfolded. So at the start of chapter 4, Israel is forced into war because the Philistines come up, they draw up for battle against Israel. And this is not new for Israel. I mean, Israel has essentially functioned for a long time, as a nation of warfare. I mean, they went in, they conquered the land. Uh, we see all throughout the book of Judges before this, this cycle, Israel sins, God sends a nation or people against them in war, and then they pray to God, and then they have war, and God delivers their enemies into their hand. So Israel is not new to this. This is not, this is not something unfounded where they don't know what to do. God has, has promised to give the enemies of Israel into their hand. And they have often experienced war. But, although it's not new, and they have done the right thing many times over, we find here in 1 Samuel, at the start of chapter 4, they do something that they should have never done. They're defeated by the Philistines in the first couple of verses. And... They recognize that it is the Lord that is behind their defeat. It's not wrong that they recognize that. They, re they rightly see that the Lord is behind their defeat by the Philistines. And what they ought to have done is they ought to have gone to the Lord in repentance, seeking why that is. Because again, God promised to give the enemies of Israel into their hand. And so when that doesn't happen, there's a reason for that. It's not just that that doesn't just happen because when you see Israel defeated in the Old Testament, there's always a reason for it. It's always sin. 
And so here what the Israelites should have done is gone to the Lord in repentance and sought, Lord, we were defeated. Why is this? What's the cause, O God? And they don't do that. What they do is they resort to some kind of tokenism, some kind of pagan idea, which they probably saw from the nations around them. And what they thought is if we just have the mere presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the symbol of God's presence with His people, if we just have that thing in the midst, we're guaranteed victory. And they find out quickly and in a bad way that the Ark of the Covenant of God is not some magical artifact. It doesn't grant them anything apart from God Himself. They find this out, and in the process, they lose the most central aspect to their worship and communion with God. And the whole situation really unfolds, as we might expect, given what we saw about sons of Eli. And they're the ringleaders here. They, they, they lead the people in taking the Ark of the Covenant, Hophni and Phinehas. They lead the charge, taking the Ark of God into the ranks of battle. So I'm going to read this section here and we'll see what happens. Chapter 4, starting in verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell and the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He, brought, <clears throat> he who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Now, undoubtedly, this was incredibly foolish for Israel to do. It was not only something that God had never given them authority to do, but it was something that they ought to have thought to be inconceivable. Because, brethren, the ark was not a weapon. It was not something to be brought into the midst of warfare. The ark was the place where God told Moses that he would meet with him concerning the people. It was to be in the holy of holies in the tabernacle. It was the place where the Israelites would have atonement for their sins. It was where on the day of atonement, they would bring the blood in and upon the mercy seat there upon the ark, they would sprinkle the blood and God would forgive them of their sins. That's what it was for. It was not a weapon. It was not meant to go into warfare. And the ark for the last 400 years or so, after the conquest of the land, had been exactly where God had commanded Moses to put it in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. That's where it was to be. That's where God was. That's where Moses was to go and meet with him. And that's where it stayed up until this point. And then it's removed. Eli's evil, wicked sons remove it. They bring it into the battlefront and it's stolen and it's taken into pagan lands. God's symbol of him dwelling amongst his people had sat in that holy of holies, the place where no one was to go. God himself would dwell there. And now it's taken and it's brought into a pagan land. People who don't even know this God. Brethren, it's no wonder you see Eli keeling over and dying. And his daughter-in-law, she says, the glory has departed. God's glory has departed. It's not a name you want to name your kid. The glory departed from Israel. And this is the sad reality of the situation, brethren. When the, 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 you have to think, the presence of God is what made Israel glorious. Other than that, Israel's nothing. In fact, that's what God says. You are nothing, and I chose you. And it is me, it is God who makes you a people, who has chosen you as a people. It is God that is the glory of Israel. Hence, why it is when, when the, it says the glory departed, because God, as it were, the symbol of God's presence is gone from the people. It's departed away. 
Hence why it is that the glory has departed away. And listen, every Israelite would have looked at it this way. They would have thought, God has left his people abandoned because of their sin. That's how they would have thought of it. God has left. God has abandoned his people. Brethren, when the glory of God departs, it is an ominous day. It is not a good day. You don't want it to be where God departs from you. That's a bad place to be. We see it all throughout the Bible how this happens. Over and over again, God speaks about this. You see it, Hosea chapter 4. You don't have to go to these. I'm just, I just want to name a couple for you. But Hosea chapter 4, God is speaking of Israel and their rebellion against him. He calls them Ephraim. And he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. God says they are, they are such in their idolatry. Leave them over there. That's what they want. And that's a dangerous place to be. We see God telling Jeremiah, stop praying for them. Stop praying for the nation. And we think, how would... Jeremiah is not supposed to pray for the nation anymore. And the reason is because God has determined that he would judge them. He has determined that they're going into exile and they're going to be judged. And God determined, I will not hear your pleas, Jeremiah, for mercy and for pardon. I won't hear it. I've determined to judge them. When, when, when God just departs, when his goodness departs, we see it, Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how the wicked, they go on in their way and in their own desires and their own sinful desires. And Paul says, God gives them over the things that they want. He just gives them up to it. We often hear in, in people as they combat what Christianity says, and they say, how is it that, that God would would choose some people for salvation and not others? And why isn't it that they have this idea that all these people are just trampling to get into the kingdom? But the Bible portrays something very differently. The Bible actually portrays this idea that people don't want God. They hate God. And if it wasn't for God's restraint, they would be far worse and it's not until God says, give them over. And then there they go, over to their sinful, wicked desires. And there's no more restraint. And that's a bad place to be. It's a real thing. And we don't want that. You don't want that. Rebellious people will continue to harden their hearts to God. And God eventually will shut them out. They, God will do that. That will happen to people. He will shut them up in their prison of sin and unrepentance because their heart is hard. Those who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus Christ are in constant danger of God departing. They are in constant danger of glory departing. But brethren, I don't... Although all of that is very much true in regards to those who do not trust in Jesus Christ. I don't want you to get lost only in how this applies to those who do not know Christ because you have to see some aspect of yourself here. Those who claim the name of Christ and persist in 
wickedness and unrighteousness, they will find that God will quickly draw himself away. They will not know the glory in the presence of God because of sin. God will not dwell in the presence of sin. And when we're playing in sin, God leaves. God departs. He will have no part of that. And we find that question a couple of times arising in the Psalms. We sang it. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall dwell in his holy place? Who shall dwell in the tent of the Lord? And brethren, if we want to be there, there are certain things that the Bible says you have to be. Blameless, speaking truth, honoring others, not taking a bribe, not speaking what's false, not swearing deceitfully. Above all, not fearing God. Or rather, fearing God. That is the chief thing. If you want to come into the dwelling place of God, brethren, we fear God. We reverence God. And we can, listen, we can, in fact, draw near to God. And He will, in fact, draw near to us. The Bible teaches us that. But James tells us, cleanse your hands. Purify your heart. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. We can have that. God won't depart from His people if they're not playing in sin. But if they are playing in sin, you can expect that God would depart. And we see that here. The Israelites were walking in, in wickedness and unrighteousness. You'll find, we'll find a little bit later that they were stuck in idolatry. And they're called to repentance. Put away from you the Asheroth and all these idols. Rather than they're stuck in idolatry and wickedness and sin, and, God's, and the glory of God's gone. He's departed now. Brethren, God's presence is not promised to rebellious people. But then we see this. Look to chapter 5. I want you to see what we have next. Now, this is a glorious reality of who God is. I want you to see that the one true God of the Scriptures is an idol-toppling God. For those of you who don't know, I, I, asked, <laughs> I asked two of you here, I won't say who it was, but I asked two of you here what toppling meant, and I got the same answer, which was to top something. So I just want to say, <laughs> toppling means to knock over. Like if Hudson is building blocks and Haddon comes and topples it over, all right? So, as long as you have that picture. But this is what I want you to see. I want you to see that God is an idol toppling God. And so we see in chapter 5, the ark is carried off by the Philistines. And I'm going to read here chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So look with me there. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. 
Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So here's what we see. The Philistines, they take the ark and they put it in the house or temple of Dagon. This was the fish god of the Philistines. But not only do they just put it in Dagon's temple, they put it right next to the statue of Dagon. A bad move. And when the people of Ashdod awake, they come in, they find him face down, bowing, as it were, before the ark of God. And it would have been, it would have been an odd sight. I mean, if you have, this is your God of your people, and you come in, and he is face down in front of what would have been to you the, the image of the other people's God would have been a pretty odd sight. But the fact of the matter is, pagan people will not abandon their worship of false idols, except from the intervening grace of God. And so what do they do? They stand him back up again. Even though he is utterly and completely humiliated, face down in the dirt, they won't abandon it. This is our God. Put him back up. He must be reverenced. So they, put, they stand him back up. But the Lord God is not intent on leaving it there. He intends to make a point. So the people go away. They come back the next morning and they find him again, face down in front of the ark, as it were, bowing before Yahweh. Not only this, though, obviously, it says his head is gone. His hands are gone. Brethren, it's visual imagery. Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. And God is intent on making that point. There is no other God but me. And this statue of this fish God will fall face down in the dirt before the ark of God. And here's the point, brethren. God is in the business of toppling idols. He is in the business of knocking over idols. He does it here. He puts this fish god, this false Philistine god, in the dirt. And he puts all false gods of all pagan people where they ought to be, face down in the dirt. And listen, I don't want you to be afraid of that kind of language. That is the way the Bible talks. I know it doesn't necessarily, uh, it, it just has words on the page. But brethren, this is what God is doing all throughout the scriptures. I know in our, the way our world, our postmodern world where we live in, to critique someone or to tell someone that they are wrong, to tell someone that their beliefs are wrong, or the way that they live is, is not in accordance with what God's word says, that, that, it's, that you're doing violence to them. You tell them that they ought not do that, and they think, that's violence. You're, you're violently aggressing me. But listen, brother, in God's economy, there are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. There are some things that ought to be toppled over and there's some things that not. And while the Lord of glory stands, all supposed gods of all other people, whatever they may be, 
whether they are real physical statues or whether they are some god of self, whether it's some false religion, some false prophet, whether it's Muhammad or the, the, the death trap of Islam, or whether it's the cult of progressivism, which does have a God, a God of self-pleasure and self-satisfaction. All of those idols are toppled over before the one true God. Brethren, he says, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God. Whatever God someone else has, whether it is a physical statue or whether it is some God they have in their own heart, God will not permit it to stand. It must fall. And God does hear what I think most, maybe even we, if we saw someone else doing it, would have a major problem with. I mean, I would have no doubt that if some saw God himself coming through and knocking over false statues of false gods, that they would be ashamed to call him their God. That they would call him overzealous intolerant and a fanatic. But, nevertheless, we know that God will topple every single idol, whether they are physical or whether they are idols of the hearts, whether they are idols in pagan people, in pagan lands who have never heard of God, the one true God, or whether they are idols that remain in the hearts of His people. God is toppling all of it. And on the final day, when Everything has been put under Christ's feet. There is not one idol that will be left standing. All false gods of every single nation, all idols that stand in the hearts of God's people, everything that stands, it's, it tries to stand itself up in front of the one true God, He will put them face down in the dirt. They will not stand. Listen, this is... This is what happens, this is what has happened, rather, in the life of every single Christian. This is exactly what the Christian experiences. And maybe they don't know how to put it into words, but this is what the Bible says happens when you become a Christian. I want you to see the display of this. 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. First Thessalonians 1, we're going to read verses 8 through verse 10. It says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, brother, this is a, this is a biblical picture of what repentance looks like. 
Turning from idols to serve the living God is what happens in the life of every single Christian. Whether they turn from a physical idol of some sort, and no doubt many do that. This, this world, this, this country we live in, you don't see that very often. But you go outside of that, and more often than not, you're going to find people that God has saved that are not just turning from what we call idols in the heart, but they're turning from physical idols, physical statues that they did once worship. And they're turning from that. But nevertheless, it happens in our own hearts too. Even if you didn't turn from some kind of physical statue, you had idols in your heart and you turned from them. You turned from those idols to serve the living and the true God. This is what happens in the life of the Christian. God came in and he gave every idol you had a dirt nap and he knocked it over face down in the dirt. Everything must bow before God. But listen, this is, there's even a greater reality to this. Because yes, it is something that we had in the beginning of our Christian walk. And as I said, every idol on that final day will not stand before Christ. So, so you have it at the beginning, sort of, and you'll have something at the end, which is its final completion. But the Bible actually teaches us that it is something that God is doing now. He is actively doing this in the life of the Christian. He wasn't just the idol toppling God at your conversion, and he won't just be one at the end. He is in this very moment for you who trust in Jesus, your idol toppling God now. Because in, in Ezekiel 36, you have these promises begin to come out in the Old Testament. You have this, these promises of God taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. You have these promises of a new covenant that would come and that God would dwell with his people and he would give them a heart of obedience. But he tells them this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleannesses and from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he says, I'm going to make you clean from all of your uncleannesses. I'm going to remove from you all of your idols. Brethren, God is doing that. He is doing that in the heart of his people. God is busy toppling idols in the hearts of his his people, in the hearts of Christians. And listen, I, I know, many of you know this, this quote. Calvin famously said that the heart of man is an idol factory and it's just producing these things. And brethren, there, there's truth to that. But listen, I don't want you as someone who's been redeemed by God to just buy that up as who you are, just some wicked, wretched, evil person who's just full of idols and that's just always who you're gonna be. And there's no place for redemption. Brethren, if God is toppling idols in your heart, then some of that's dying. And it needs to do that. It has to die. God is toppling them over. God is cleansing his people from their idols. He says, from all your idols, I will cleanse you. But let me ask you this, because this is where I think for us, the rubber hits the road in regards to this question. Because God is doing it. It's not a question of whether or not 
He is. He is toppling the idols in the hearts of his people. But the question for us is, when he topples them and they are face down in the dirt, do we leave them there? Or do we stand them back up again? Because in our own hearts, brethren, I fear that many times we act like the foolish Philistines and we stand that God back up again. We stand that idol back up again. When it ought to just lay there in the dirt and not get up again. I think of that that psalm, Psalm 18, David speaking about his enemies. He says, I pursued them until they were in the dirt and they would not rise again. Brethren, that's how these idols ought to be in the heart of God's people. We ought not function like those foolish Philistines who stood their God back up again after he was humiliated in the dirt. Their idolatry was confronted by the one true God And they didn't turn to him. They didn't repent. They walk in and they find their God face down in front of the Israelites' God, so to speak, at least in the way they would think, and they didn't turn to him. They sent him away. You see that in the next couple of verses. They put the ark of God on a cart led by cows and they send it away. They see the judgment of God that was coming upon them because of their sin. And instead of bowing to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, they send Him away. They want nothing to do with Him. And brethren, this is, this is how many in the world are today. They are confronted with their idols. They are confronted with their falsehood and their sin and the judgment of God that is sure to come. And instead of pleading for pardon, from the one who will undoubtedly give it, they send God away. Get him out of here. Get him away from us as fast as possible. Get him back to whoever brought him over here. We don't want him. They scramble. They cry foul. And they scramble to get away from him. That is how many function today. And brethren, our message will always be that it is not safe to run. It is not safe to go away. It's not safe to send God away. It's not safe to run. There's nowhere you can go. But it is safe to run to Him. And though He might topple every bit of your false idolatry, you will find that it is no no cause for grief. Brethren, anybody in here know this reality of God toppling idols in your life and you're sad about that? Don't worry, I'll wait. It's not, nobody feels that. No Christian is sad that, they've, that God has rid them from their false idolatry. Brethren, though God may topple everything that you are and you have, you will not find it a cause for grief. Because it's all false. And we read this verse earlier. John ends his first letter to the churches with these words. We know that the Son of God has come. And He has given us understanding that we may know Him who is true. There is a true God. He is the true God, John says. He is the true God. 
and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And then finally, go back to 1 Samuel again. You see in chapters 6 and 7, the ark is brought back into Jerusalem. And what I want you to see here is that I, I, I struggled honestly, um, partly because Manny wanted me to go all the way through 7. And I thought, I don't want to go all the way through 7. <laughs> um, now it, it ties, the whole event is one event. But I struggled in what do I want you to see out of these last couple of chapters because I knew what I wanted out of the first couple. But the last couple, it was kind of difficult to really deal with what I wanted you to see. And so here, here's, here's what I'm seeing out of chapter 6 and 7, and you may find other things there, but this is at least one thing. But I want you to see that God will be gracious and return to a repentant people. God will be gracious and return to repentant people. Because here's what you see in chapter 6. The Philistines, they're fearful of the judgment of God. They put the ark of God on this cart. They, they let it lead its way. And it goes back to Jerusalem. Uh, it comes, well, it comes to Israel rather. First to a place called Beth Shemesh. And then they send it up to Kiriath-Jerim. And when it gets to Kiriath, Samuel addresses the people. And here's what he says. So go to chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now, when... Oh, I'm in 2 Samuel. I'm thinking, what in the world? That is not what it's supposed to say. Hold on one second. It's talking about a king. And I'm like, we got no kings. Okay, 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim took, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim. A long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it 
as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. So Samuel calls the people to repentance. And he essentially says to them, if you're returning to the Lord, then put away your idols and serve God alone. Serve Yahweh only. And so the people gather, they fast, they cry out to the Lord. We have sinned against the Lord. They recognize we have sinned against the Lord. And then we find something interesting. It sort of comes full circle here. And we find again what we saw in chapter 4. The Philistines come against Israel again. And the question, I mean, as we read it, it, it happens so fast. But for them, you have to think, I mean, did they learn? They came in repentance to the Lord, but did they really learn? What are they going to do? I mean, they got the ark back again. Are they going to bring it again back into battle? Or are they going to go and seek the Lord and seek His help? That God would, would remove the enemies of Israel out. How are they going to react? And of course, brethren, they do what they ought to have done in the first place. They go to Samuel and they say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us. That God would deliver us. That God would save us from the hand of the Philistines. Brethren, they cry to God to deliver him. To, to deliver them. And you know what? He does. He does it because God promised them that He would do that. And they walked in sin before and the ark of God was taken off. And by God's grace, He comes back to His people and they're in repentance. And God delivers them. God delivers them out of the hand of their enemies. And brethren, this is imagery of the gospel. I mean, what is the very essence of the gospel message that we preach? It's be reconciled to God. You're God's enemy, but if you would come in repentance, God will be reconciled to you. He will accept you. He will let you return. If you come in repentance, those who recognize their sin and cry to the Lord for pardon, they will most definitely get what they ask for. It's a promise. Aaron, Aaron talked about briefly in the beginning of the, of the meeting here that we want to be able to pray in faith. And brother, we want to do that. We want to be able to pray in faith even when there is no absolute promise in Scripture. But brother, if there is a promise in Scripture... The question of faith shouldn't even be on the table. God said it. Jesus Christ said himself, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Will there ever be one who seeks to come to Jesus and he casts them out? Never. There will never be one. It will not happen. Jesus promised it. There are things in the Bible that God has promised. And you can bring them to the Lord with such certainty that they cannot be questioned. 
And this is one of them. The promise of pardon. The Bible says, if you would come, God would forgive. End of story, period. No questions, no if, no buts, no, well, what about this or what about that? I remember speaking to this guy, and this doesn't happen often, but I'm sure some of you have dealt with it before, and he was telling me that he's committed too much sin that the Lord could not forgive him. And I told him, that's not true. You don't believe God's promise. God says he will forgive you. If you would come, I mean, if, if you come, he'll forgive. If you don't come, you won't be forgiven. You'd be for sure of that. But if you will come, it doesn't matter what you've committed. And you know what? The lost world hates that. Because they say, how, is that? how can that be? How can this person over here come and, and committed all these atrocities? I mean, Michael and I were just talking to a guy the other day, and he was saying how he's a good person and how... His sister was a good person and his brother and they, they committed suicide. And how could, I mean, how is it that, that they die? But then you have these other people who are on death row and they cry out to, and you say that he, they're forgiven. How can that be? Well, because God said, if you come, you'll be forgiven. If you don't come, you're not forgiven. Brethren, God has promised it. If you would come, forgiveness for you. And that's, that's, that's the imagery that we have here. They come in repentance, brethren, these are people, I mean, the, the lengths to which Israel fell into idolatry and that God still blessed them, it is astounding. It is astounding to think about that. They not only sinned, they lost the ark and God still returns to them, they come in repentance, and God saves them out of the hand of the Philistines. That is astounding grace. And then when you think about how all of that was only done to a people who were not even what God's full plan was. They were a type. They were a shadow. Israel wasn't the final thing. And all the grace that God had shown to Israel... This unrepentant, wicked nation. And he showed that much grace to them. Brethren, how much more would he do for his people? How much more would he do for them if we would come in repentance? And it's because this, God has displayed himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. That's who God himself says that he is. He says that to Moses. That's true. That's who God is. He is that God. He, 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 he is the God who will judge the wicked. There's no doubt about that. But He is the God who forgives sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And brethren, it's not just who can do it but Him, but He really does it. He really does cast them as far as the east is from the west. And this is imagery for us. All that sin that they walked in, brethren, and it was just a shadow. Brethren, for God's people, He will do much more for us. Those words from Isaiah 55. 
I often think of this passage, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Brethren, if he would do it for the Israelites after they had sinned and lost the ark, and then the ark comes back, and these people come in repentance, and God saves them out of the hand of the rain. If God would do it for them, we are most assuredly promised that He would do it for us, for His people. So brethren, even if there is sin in the midst of the camp, if we come in repentance, God has promised to return to a repentant people. He's promised to do it. And this for us is a great image for how we see that happen. Brethren, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word and how there are, there are aspects to who you are here, Lord, that uh, need to be glorious to us on all fronts. The fact that, that you are holy and you will not dwell in the midst of sin. You have not promised your presence to a rebellious people. You have not done that, Lord, because you are holy and you are righteous. And that's the kind of God that we need. And Lord, you have displayed yourself not only in Scripture, but in our own lives over the time that we have walked with you to be the one who topples idols. And you have displayed yourself, Lord, as a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And if we would come in repentance, you would return. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to remember these, these attributes of who you are, Lord. You are the one true God. Amen.